Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or around the world. This again is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel. And I'm just always excited to be with you, have you be with us, to discuss the issues of our day. And boy, we're sure into one here on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, because we're going to talk about fake news and how do we know. And these are just critical issues of import that it's well over my technological ability, but we have a veteran journalist uh, who is here with us today as our guest for the next hour, Brian Kaye. As far as my technical ability, I've said this before publicly that uh, I'm almost ready to get my arms around the Y2K problem. Not quite, but I think I'm ready to grapple with it. So, you know, my <laughs> technological area and expertise, but we have others that can really be able to be of assistance. So you will learn by spending an hour with us each week on the Variety Channel, uh, Friday mornings at 10 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Pacific, or around the world, or also on demand anytime thereafter, where we do just get our arms around these various issues. As far as fake news, it's it's been in the news, it's been discussed. I'm not really sure I know what that term means as such, because we've had kind of fake news ever since news has begun, where anybody reporting news will bring their own biases into the approach, uh, certainly sometimes uh, manipulate it. In fact, I've, I've seen, we'll ask Brian Kaye, our guest, uh, if, you, if the periodical really likes a candidate for, for office, for example, uh, you'll see a picture of that person smiling and waving with kissing babies or the American flag behind them. And if they don't like it, you'll probably just get them as they're about to take a big bite out of a sandwich or something. So choosing which photograph to publish uh, certainly gives away your biases. But but we have Brian Kaye, C-A-L-L-E, on our our show with us today, who's a lot more knowledgeable in this area than I am, a graduate of Pepperdine University. Now, already we're going to feel no, sorry no, for not. Brian I didn't. Jim. I didn't graduate from Pepperdine. I graduated from USC. Oh. USC would kill me. Although, although uh, I was probably with all the scandals, with all the scandals these days, it's probably uh, it's probably better to be associated with Pepperdine again. <laughs> well, the, you see, Brian, I was just beginning some fake news, and you 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 stood on my lines there because I was going to say it <laughs> oh, for exactly no. that reason. But uh, he is this fellow is a free market enthusiast. That is not fake news, uh, and has just actually was a. Uh, uh, an aide, congressional aide at the U.S. House of Representatives. I'd like to talk about that experience just a little bit. And then as a, a vice president of the Claremont Institute for a while, which is a very knowledgeable, insightful organization, head of the editorial board at the Orange County Register at a fairly young age where he was really shooting and grinding with regard to editorial comment, a co-host of a uh, show on Fox 11 TV called... Uh, what, You Decide SoCal, uh, which was a broadcast for some years. So he's really a veteran, now a part owner of Seminole, which is the manager and owner of LA Weekly. So he's kind of changed from uh, 
newspaper with a somewhat conservative libertarian bent now to one that at least typically is known as being more liberal but he wants to as i understand it turn it into the cultural center of los angeles and he certainly don't stand in his way this man is successful so uh at any rate brian Kaye, welcome to all rise thank you for being with us thank you judge thanks for having me i really appreciate you uh thinking to invite me and feel free to interrupt me anytime I say something that isn't quite accurate. That's what newsmen do <laughs> for you. So, well, I, the, the good thing about you is you're you're mostly always accurate. So, you know, as as I say that uh, 47.3 percent of all statistics are made up on the spot, including this one. So, you know, we, people have a little <laughs> flexibility. But at any rate, uh, let me just ask a little bit more about your background and tell us how you got into journalism, Brian Kaye. Yeah, so um, it was it, it wasn't necessarily the path I chose. I always had a great uh, reverence for journalists, and uh, as I was growing up, I grew up pretty poor, um, and so you know my experience with journalism was one uh, watching stuff on TV, and then two, um, my mother in her third job to make ends meet, she was a single mom. She would deliver newspapers, and occasionally my sister and I would get up at three a.m. with her and throw them out of her uh, minivan. Um, so <laughs> I never necessarily thought I would go into a career. And it's actually funny, years later, I was running editorial for one of the newspapers that we used to deliver as a child. So it was a, a really kind of full circle experience for me. But, um, you know, I started, I really cut my teeth, I think, in understanding media. Um, when I worked for Sally Ride, the first American woman in space, um, I was director of sales and marketing for her company, Sally Ride Science in San Diego. Uh, and she became a mentor of sorts with me. And I really learned um, writing uh, op-eds or what op-eds were. I learned about press releases and I learned about engagement with media, just generally speaking. So I was really on the business side of it for, for a short period of time before the Claremont Institute recruited me to come be vice president. I think I was 26 or 27. And I, um, I would handle some of their media outreach as well. Um, and I only stayed at Claremont for a little while because I, I value a lot of the thought leadership of Claremont, but at the same time, um, I didn't share a lot of the political values with the Claremont Institute. Um, and so I, I left on good terms, and I have respect for what they do, although I don't always agree um, with it. And uh, then I got recruited by a mutual friend, uh, Judge uh, Steve Greenhut, to come work at the Orange County Register. Uh, and I said no initially. <laughs> and then six months later, he came back to me again and said, you really should do this. And then I, I took him up on that offer, and I went there. Um, and then a few weeks later, uh, and he was the lead columnist at the OC Register at the time. Um, and a few weeks later, he left <laughs> once I got there. And I was like, what are you doing? And he was like, he's like, he was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go into the think tank world, but, um, but I recommended you for my job. So in short order, uh, I got uh, a really awesome uh, position at the register where I really cut my teeth in investigative journalism and uh, analysis. And I think made a name for myself, for better or worse, in Orange County. Uh, and then that, that, that just spiraled into me becoming the opinion editor for the Register. And then when we acquired the, uh, the Riverside Press Enterprise, I became the opinion editor for both of those. Uh, and then I was on executive team at that point for the parent company of the Register, Freedom Communications. And then we were acquired a few years later by um, the Southern California News Group. And they owned seven, uh, I'm sorry, nine other newspapers in Southern California. And I was promoted right after that acquisition to run uh, editorial and opinion for 
all 11 newspapers in Southern California. And so I then um, had a daily radio show on KBC, uh, the TV show you mentioned on Fox News, and then decided that with all of the things going on in the media industry, that I wanted to try my hat on seeing if I could help solve some of the tumult and see if I could come up with a way to help make um, a longstanding institution in L.A., the L.A. Weekly, sustainable. Because, as you know, as well as I do, almost every newspaper in the country, including alt-weeklies, which I think actually have taken more pain than regular newspapers, um, are struggling. And so I thought, you know what I'm you know what, I want to try the entrepreneurial side. I want to try and see if there's a way of turning these organizations into long-standing, sustainable organizations. Um, and it's been almost two years, and it, it was definitely a rocky ride because I was not welcomed with open arms from, uh, from some political forces and journalism forces in L.A., no, that, now, that would be right. But I, I, I can put your mind at rest, Brian Kaye. I am not inviting you as a guest uh, and in two weeks have you take over All Rise the Libertarian Way with Brian Kaye. Uh, we're not, we're not going to do that. So uh, that, that coup will not be successful one from your standpoint or from mine. But, but thank you for being with us. But it, it certainly is interesting to see you with your background now be involved with the LA Weekly, which is a, a fairly liberal publication. How are you going to figure out a sustainable business model for the LA Weekly uh, because you're right and we all see it the the size of newspapers is shrinking the circulation is shrinking none of my kids as I understand it to subscribe to a newspaper my wife doesn't read the news they get it all online so what is your your view with regard to the future of journalism at least in the traditional print media and how do you come up with that business model you know, I think that's a, a challenge that we grapple with every day. Um, the the thing about um, the LA Weekly, and you're right, it, it has had a progressive bent since it started some 40 years ago. Um, and I think that that is in line with kind of the progressive viewpoint of Los Angeles. You know, me personally, I'm someone who thinks that news should be narrative-free and we should leave our politics out of news. And part of the reason we have so much vitriol in politics and divisiveness in the country um, is that uh, newspapers and media companies on all sides um, are promoting uh, news that comes from a perspective. I don't even know in some cases you can call it news. Um, you can call it activist journalism. Um, but, you know, LA Weekly has a different role in uh, Los Angeles and the greater Los Angeles area, which is it's always been looked to as um, a trendsetter and a cultural setter, both from uh, inside Los Angeles, but also from people looking into Los Angeles for the rest of the country or the rest of the world. So I think that the LA Weekly in particular is uniquely positioned for an opportunity to really continue to do that. And I think when you set out on an ambitious vision like that, uh, you can find ways that are non-traditional to monetize the paper. I think that, you know, you can, people want food coverage in Los Angeles. They want to know what's going on culturally. They want to know what's going on in the art community. They want to know what's going on in the music community. They want to know what's going on in entertainment. They want to know the clubs to go to. And they want credible sources to bring them that. And so it's our job to figure out how do we uh, both provide high-quality content, but at the same time figure out new revenue streams attached to those. Uh, and that's something that we work on on a daily basis. Uh, and secondarily, the more challenging part is providing the investigative journalism that we also want to be able to provide to the city, not just 
because we should, but because it's much needed to hold accountable the powers that be. And, and I can go on a whole tangent on what we need to hold them accountable for these days, which is homelessness, but that's a whole other show. Um, and the challenge with investigative journalism is it's very, very expensive. And so if you look at almost any newsroom in the country, bar maybe three or four, the first thing that tends to get cut from budgets is investigative journalism because it's expensive, it takes a long time to produce, and the output from the really great investigative journalists um, is less because they're digging. They're spending a lot of time researching. And so I think going forward, um, you'll see a lot of newsrooms continue to cut that, even though it's critical, I think, to both democracy and public information flow. And you'll see more and more institutions um, in the nonprofit space start to help fund that. And we, the owners of LA Weekly, have even started a uh, fund a nonprofit fund to start doing that in L.A., uh, which is, I'm kind of breaking news, I guess, because I haven't talked about this publicly really at all. And it's in the infancy stages, but the idea is that the, the nonprofit investigative journalism is a way of making such journalism sustainable, um, but also is a funding source that is more readily available. Because if you think about it in, in more broader terms, Investigative journalism, especially narrative-free investigative journalism, is most certainly in the public interest and the public good, thereby, excuse me, a charitable, a charitable act in many ways. So that's just one of the few ways that we're looking at creating uh, sustainable journalism models in Los Angeles and beyond. And we also have, I would be remiss to say that we also uh, have the Irvine Weekly, which is based in Irvine, which is a both a magazine but also a community newspaper that focuses sure. on the cool things happening in Irvine and the greater Orange County area, um, but also hyper-local, community-focused news on what's going on in the third largest city in Orange County. Okay. Um, was I correct? Uh, I, I've never really had this verified, but as to my comment about if you like me as a candidate, you'll p- print a picture of me as smiling with the American flag, and if you don't like me, I'll be <laughs> eating a sandwich. Is that Does that actually you happen? Know, it's really interesting. So you mentioned, you know, you asked a really a, a question that I think more people need to ask because the term fake news is, is thrown around um, in great detail these days on the left and on the right, between progressives and between conservatives, between Democrats, between Republicans, um, and between academics and, and journalists themselves. And fake news is, everyone agrees, or most everyone agrees that fake news is a problem. I think that there was, uh, I'm not sure if it was Gallup or one of the other large polling organizations that did a pretty detailed uh, study on this, and 77% of Americans acknowledge the problem of fake news. But the challenge is how they define it, right? And so if you're progressive and you're on, on the left, you define it as um, Russian operatives perpetuating fake news like Pizzagate, um, or they define it as Breitbart, or they define it as Fox News. If you're on the right, you define it as the New York Times, uh, the LA Times, uh, CNN, uh, and MSNBC. So it's really interesting that the term, everyone agrees that fake news is the problem, but they don't necessarily agree on what fake news is. And I think what fake news is, is now a catch-all term for news that was manufactured and is completely false, like the, the Pizzagate story about Hillary Clinton operating a, a child prostitution made out of a pizza uh, shop in D.C., uh, and 
uh, a catch-all term for media bias as well. And so when President Trump responds and says this is fake news, oftentimes it's not necessarily that all the facts are incorrect. It's that there's bias in the articles. And so the term is taken on a life of its own. But when I think of it, I think of it in terms of more generally speaking, both media bias, the catch-all for media bias, manufactured news and uh, propaganda and misinformation, um, which is why it's such an interesting topic. And the funny part is, to your, to your direct question, um, topic selection or photo selection, but I'm going to lump it into topic selection, is most certainly part of that discussion because that's one of the things that most, I think, conservatives have complained about in mainstream media for a very long time. I'll give you a great example of it. Um, in Colorado, for example, during the 2012 presidential election. Um, and I have a copy of this newspaper because someone sent it to me and I found it to be interesting. During uh, the run between uh, President Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, uh, there were two different rallies held in uh, Colorado Springs, about two weeks apart from each other. The first one was an Obama rally. The second one was a Romney rally. In the first rally, uh, it was President Barack Obama. There was a front-page story with a picture of President Obama and the headline that read, nearly 10,000 people attend Obama rally. The exact same newspaper, exact same front page, um, two weeks later, has a different headline about Romney's rally, which says, only 10,000 people attend Romney rally. And while that's a subtle example, the words almost and only or nearly and only give a very different picture in the mind of the person reading the headline, right? And I think that's part of the challenge for the broader journalism industry because that's why so many people have a current distrust in the product these days. Well, Brian, you, you neglected, of course, to show in 2012, you mentioned Barack Obama and Romney. You forgot to mention Governor Gary Johnson and Judge Jim Gray ran as libertarians. But we had uh, almost <laughs> almost a few people at our rallies, but, but you know, that, that's true. And you raised, Did you have a rally in Colorado Springs? <laughs> uh, no, it was, it was in Denver, but uh, we didn't get much coverage, but one way or the other. You know, it's 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 critically important because everyone has biases, and and we've seen that, of course, from time immemorial. You say that we should be involved in in just providing news uh, straightforward, without you know, as a narrative free. But uh, we all know that sensationalism sells, controversy sells, and and I still remember I read a book on Harry Luce, who started the uh, uh, Time Magazine, and when he was in. I think it was Princeton uh, as a journalism major and was running the school newspaper. Uh, he wasn't getting much attention. So he started a controversy by actually falsifying a letter from a dormitory resident. They called him a dormy, criticizing the Greek system, uh, the, the fraternity sorority system, and ran the letter. And then, oh, that got people's attention. And then he ran another letter, supposedly from somebody in a fraternity, criticizing the dormy. And it was all phony. But pretty soon he had people writing letters in, taking one side or the other, and he got lots of attention. Now, you know that's always happened. It does sell newspapers. How do we know? How, how do we know if things are accurate or not? That's the biggest challenge today. And, and because there's some 
semblance of distrust, um, it makes it more challenging. I, I teach, um, I'm faculty aside from everything else that I do at Chapman University. And it's one of the more rewarding things that I do. Um, and uh, we also just started a center for free expression and media integrity at Chapman, which we want to be a, a thought leader in these types of issues. And while we don't have the solutions that we just started, um, and it's a, a project that uh, Lisa Sparks, who's the dean of the Communications School at Chapman, who's also running for Congress in Orange County, um, and Michael Ross, a, 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 another faculty member, the three of us are a team on. Um, that's one of the things that we're looking at. But I can say that, that the, the best way to truly recognize whether something is fake or not um, or accurate or not is to just be critical of everything you read, meaning anything that you see, don't take it as fact, no matter what institution that you're looking at. Make sure that you check it against other sources and, and, and be mindful that the headlines are meant to make you click and that usually that the actual facts and details are in the meat of the story. Um, and then to the extent that you can, um, ignore adjectives to the, to the extent that you can, because oftentimes the adjectives or descriptors are where you see bias come in. You know, it's a question of education, and, and it's always been with us, and, and you, just, you just hit on it, that you want to look at the source. In fact, anytime I read an op-ed piece, uh, the first thing, or the letter to the editor, or even an article, first thing I do is look at who the author is, uh, see what their bias would be. Uh, if you're receiving some form of campaign information, who's paying for it? I mean, this is this is something that, that you simply must know. It's a question of education. And the answer, of course, is to broaden your reach. And, and I regret to say, and I've made a real miscalculation, when we finally came out with all these various cable TV channels, you know, 200 stations, 300 stations, I thought, wow, we're all going to get amazing diversity of news and uh, I thought boy that's going to be sensational and boy was I wrong Brian because what we what actually ends up happening is some channels figure out what your perspectives are and cater to you so that you're the good guy you're right you're righteous and everybody else is evil and uh, I've done this before as a test where I've seen some form of event happen during a day and then I look at CBS and MSNBC, and Fox News, and CNN, and they have the names right, but everything else is askew. Everything else is different depending on their bias. So it's up to us. So we just, I think you're right. I don't know any other answer other than look to the source and be skeptical. No, 100%. And I've done the same thing where you look at, uh, you go, I don't watch any of the cable news stations anymore. I just can't do it because I think that they really do. Um, more harm than good in many ways, um, unless you just look at them as entertainment. If it's just entertainment to you, then go for it. Otherwise, if you're looking for actual information, um, I don't know that that's where I would recommend going. But um, I, I have done this exact same thing where you see a headline um, or you or you hear about a story and you go to kind of watch, and every single one from CNN to Fox News to MSNBC, they have a different spin on the exact same topic. Um, which, you know, to the untrained eye is, is a very dangerous thing that's shaping the way in which you think about it in, in communication context, as Lisa Sparks would say, it's all about framing and the framing of an issue. And so based on perspective or the audience you're, care, you're catering to, you might frame the issue in a particular way. Um, another friend of mine who, I'm not sure if he wants me to tell this story, but so I won't use his name, but very good friend of mine, 
uh, talking head on CNN, gave the analogy once to me that's always stuck with me, that uh, the talking head programs on CNN uh, in particular, but I think this is true of Fox News and MSNBC as well, um, are like professional wrestling. And he likened it to professional wrestling in that there's a hero and a villain uh, in every talking head segment based on the audience and based on the perspective of the the host and the station. And then in some cases, you're Hulk Hogan, and in some cases, um, <clears throat> you're Andre the Giant, you're the bad guy. Um, yes. And he said on CNN, because he, he's a conservative, that he was consistently the bad guy. Yes. You know, I, I mentioned this before as well, that one of the, the, the successes I had as a parent, I was driving my three young children, maybe five, eight, and eight years old, down south on, on Highway 5 in California here and went by a strawberry field. And they have, you know, plastic that they put over these strawberries, I think, to keep the moisture in or whatever. And I said, look, kids, that's where they raise plastic. No, oh, really, Daddy? Oh, really? And I didn't say anything more. And about five miles down the road, one of my kids, oh, come on, Dad. But, you know, it's important that we train our young people, our children, to question any source, including their father, even when they're five or eight years old. That's the sort of skepticism we need in order to ferret these things out. So we're going to take a break here and come back after these words, talking a little more deeply into fake news and, and how do we know and what we can do about it with a true professional Ryan Kaye, now of the of the uh, uh, L.A. Weekly. L.A. Weekly. Fast. L.A. Weekly, I got it. Uh, and we'll come back just after these words. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray on All Rise. Again, the idea being that if we employ libertarian values, education, responsibility, uh, financial and otherwise, that we will all rise together, which is kind of the play on words when they mention when a judge takes the bench, but we will all rise together. But again, in 
in reflection of my wife asking for a little bit of silliness on my show, uh, at least some intentional silliness, uh, I'm going to ask my, my guest, Brian Kaye, a question. Uh, Mr. Kaye, what do you call a cow that's just given birth? I know this has been on your mind, so I'll, I'll answer the question. What do you call a cow that's just given birth? And, of course, the answer is decaffeinated. So now you know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to chuckle better when I first asked you, but one way or the other, I can hear the scowls from uh, all around the nation as they're listening to All Rise at the moment. But we're, we're talking about the raw information. And, and again, it is a question of skepticism, legitimate skepticism, education, uh, not accepting anything for, directly unless it's, it's been verified. But so we have fact checkers. You know, Snopes, for example, and my sister uses them a lot, uh, and, and that's important. But Brian Kaye, how do we know if somebody has hacked Snopes? I mean, who's going to fact check the fact checkers, as it were? You know, it's interesting because, you know, for years I used Snopes, and, and I don't really use Snopes anymore because at some point they made the decision that they were also going to be a content creator. So now they are, um, they're, they're creating content as well. And in some cases, fact-checking can also be biased, but that's a whole another conversation. You know, I, I think the challenge, again, comes down to critical thinking and really look at primary sources. Um, look at the words that someone says and not the analysis and, and, and the, uh, of the situation. I think that's critical. And I think it comes down to us all being in, probably teaching in academia, both in K-12 through and in college, you know, how do we... Um, teach our students to be more critical in their thought because it all at the end of the day it comes down to us and what we believe right yes it does and your example again I'm just marveling at it because it really nails it with the Colorado rallies that almost 10,000 people there which is a pejorative thing uh as you know, or or only ten thousand, which I'm sorry is the pejorative. It just it it reveals so much, and and people of course do that all the time. And of course you mentioned people that are running for office uh, and that sort of thing. But but it's up to us when it comes down to it. But I I do believe that government censorship. I'm a libertarian, and and. I suppose there should be some censorship if I'm going to publish how to manufacture a nuclear bomb and stuff. I, I think that that's legitimate censorship, although you can still find the information on the Internet, I expect. But it should be kept to a true minimum. But but what do you believe are areas that the federal government legitimately can employ censorship, Brian Kaye? Because uh, you're, you're as anti-censorship, I'm sure, as I am. I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> I, would, I, I don't really. Any kind of censorship, I don't think it's particularly good. Um, in terms of, I think that one of the things that needs to, and I could talk to you and nauseam about this topic, is we need to change our tort laws, just generally speaking, in a country, because they're really bad for, I think, the economy and for entrepreneurs and, and in countries whatsoever, or uh, for the economy in the country whatsoever, because um, there's a lot of interesting things I've learned going from the business side of, of an operation, like a media operation, um, from the editorial side to the to the business side. And one of the things that I've learned is that, um, in, and you know this because you're a judge, uh, anything that's written in a complaint these days, or I guess that has been this way for a very long time, um, is protected. And you can't sue someone for, I guess, slander or libel in, in a complaint, which means what happens today, because newsrooms have been cut and there's less people in there checking the details of stories that uh, a journalist can simply print the accusations in a complaint, you as, as well as anyone knows that those accusations aren't or don't have to necessarily be true because the goal is to paint the person you're suing in the most 
um, <clears throat> ugly of ways. And so I think that, that changing laws around torts to protect against things like that and to make, uh, make it so that um, it, when people do choose to use words in, in complaints, they have to be accurate. But that's a, a little aside. I think also, and I would get, <laughs> um, you know, I don't think this will be popular, especially in, in media circuits, but I do think that we need to change laws as well so that journalists and journalism organizations are held accountable when they write stories that are um, defaming or slanderous, because I think it will cause uh, the industry to have to use um, more, more fact checking and be more judicious in the stories they choose. Uh, and, and I, and again, I'm a, a firm believer in the freedom of the press and free speech, uh, and obviously our constitution. Um, but I do think that we need to add some more legal protections to make sure that, um, there is consequences, particularly for bad actors, especially those who were during the last election trying to impact the election by literally creating fake news sites and stories that don't exist. Like, those, those types of things should be punishable, um, and we need a better, um, a better framework for doing that. But for me, in general, I err on the side of no censorship. Sure. Well, that's, it really is a critically important thing, uh, and that we have certainly some big institutions now, the Googles of the world, Twitter, Facebook, recently said that they're going to be depriving certain undesirables from having sites on their network. And one that comes to mind is the Chinese government, which has been foisting a fair amount of, of false news there. But but what do you think of that? Because it, it could lead to uh, how are we going to protect a libertarian from party for being similarly outlawed or the LA Weekly of all things? Uh, what, what kind of protections would we have there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the thing about it is I don't know that, I don't know to what extent it's the responsibility of the tech platforms to censor their membership because that's, you can't really do that through an algorithm or maybe someday you can. I don't think you can now. That takes a human being, takes a human being's own bias into consideration. I mean, for the example of China, I'm someone that happens to be very pro China and pro the relationship between the U.S. and China. I have been for just about ever because I think that it's the most important global geopolitical relationship in the world between China and the U.S. Um, they control 40% of global GDP, and we need to start building a, uh, a what I would call Pacific Bridge, because I think that the two countries are just incredibly important. But um, with that, you know, if you, if you take actions as a tech platform where you're punishing other nations because you don't necessarily like what's coming out of those other nations, then what's to say you're not going to start um, disallowing, to your point, libertarian content or, or content that's too progressive or, or whatever it might be. I think the beauty of the experiment of America and our democracy is that we protect people's right to say basically whatever they want, whenever they want, because we believe in the human spirit and the human spirit and the human mind and the ability to discern what is right and wrong. Um, and if you are not allowing public debate around certain issues, all you do is suppress those issues, but you never really get a, oh, oh, you never really get rid of them. And when you suppress something, it usually comes back with a vengeance. And so it's better, I think, to air these things publicly and let people have critical discussions and open dialogues about these issues. And I think we've gotten to a point in society where um, what we would rather have happen is we would rather have someone with whom we don't agree or who, who says something egregious shut up and never be able to speak again and to shut those ideas in a closet. But just because you put something in a closet doesn't mean you've gotten rid of it. And I think the only way that you get rid of 
um, ideas that are dangerous to society is by letting them debate and letting the good people of the world in America say, no, this isn't consistent with our values. Brian, I think that's exactly right. Uh, it's, it's long range, but you go back to the Skokie, Illinois case in which you had, and there was a big Jewish population in there, and I think in the 1950s, and they had sued to keep people that were Nazis from parading in Skokie, Illinois, carrying their swastikas and all the rest. And the Supreme Court, to its credit, said, you know, it's a matter of speech. Uh, you have the right to say something. You don't have a right to have other people listen. But but we have to stand up for speech that we do not agree with. You cannot get into that censorship. And the First Amendment just stands for that. And I think you would agree with me also that the Internet has been what a major revolution in the history of the world, uh, much to the scorn of the Chinese government, for example, because they've always tried to control the news, and now they're less being able to do so. So that's a good thing. So it comes basically, like you said, the remedy for false speech is more speech. So so good for you, and, and in the journalism field, uh, you have to stand up and bring lawsuits, in fact, if, p- if people are trying to keep that free speech from occurring. It, it must be a challenge, but it must be also gratifying, because you are a patriot by doing that, in my opinion. Thank you. I, pr- I appreciate that. It's uh, <laughs> it's not an easy job, but I think it's an important job. And I think my staff, I mean, our, our editors and our writers do it um, you know, more than I do these days. But of course, I try to support them to the extent that I can. To come back to your business model, because I, I see more print media going to more investigation, long, longer, uh, more detailed studies. Uh, but uh, uh, do you still use Associated Press or UPI to get your, your various news? To what degree are those institutions still being used? No, I, I don't. We don't use them um, within our organization. A lot of other newspapers do. Um, and they're actually becoming, I think, in many ways, in some organizations, used more just because it's, more cost effective. Um, I think that as a student of, excuse me, the history of journalism, especially over the last several decades, I think that when you look at the Associated Press and you trace the decision that they made in the 90s, I believe it was in the 90s, uh, that really started to hurt journalism. There were like a lot of shoes that drop, I think, that hurt newspapers. Um, one was Craigslist. When when newspapers just saw Craigslist come online, they were like, oh, that's not going to impact us, and they didn't do anything to compete with Craigslist, and that took away all the classified advertising. Similarly, when the Associated Press, which if you think about it, is funded and paid for, not by direct consumers, but by newspapers and media companies throughout the country, if not the world, um, when Associated Press made the decision to put all of its content online for free, it opened up the floodgates in many ways because basically the stories that people had to go through their local newspaper to get, they um, they put online so that directly consumers could get them as well. And it's funny because even after they made that decision, um, newspapers continued to pay a membership fee to the Associated Press and to this day continue to do so, which funds them. Um, and the problem with that is that when people pay a subscription fee, for the Orange County Register or the LA Times or whatever it may be, and they're getting Associated Press content, it's, it's, it's kind of like, well, why do I need to pay for this when I can just go online and get it for free, to your earlier point? And I think that um, I think that, that model uh, most certainly hurt journalism and hurt newspapers, and particularly from being sustainable economically, but also 
Um, I think that that eventually will change. And I think that's part of the reason you see you get criticism from uh, the public or skepticism from the public as well. Because it's like, you know, the same story is appearing in how many different newspapers across the United States, which means, you know, one organization or one group has such influence over the newspaper and news industry. And I think that you don't want consolidation like that in journalism, most certainly. You want diversity of ideas. You want diversity of opinion. And that diversity often comes from the writing from a local perspective on a national issue. Because how something, how the president says something in Washington, D.C. on an issue um, has a different impact in every community around the country because each community has a different economy. Each community has an, a different demographic makeup. Each community has different problems. And so having perspective from each of those communities is really, really valuable and really rich for both community building but also national dialogue and policymaking. And you lose that when you consolidate or homogenize news, which is essentially what AP has done. Even still, um, AP is really important to a lot of newspapers and, and arguably one of the reasons that they're able to stay at least a little bit afloat by uh, using content that would be cheaper. I would also add, though, <laughs> that hurts the employment of journalists, right? Because if I can subscribe or a publisher can subscribe to the Associated Press and get any number of stories for whatever fee, um, that means I'm hiring less local journalists to write about those stories. Um, and I think it has an impact, obviously, on journalism as a profession, but two, it also has an impact on advertising. A lot of, a lot of local advertisers want local stories. They don't want um, uh, uh, associated press content that can come from anywhere. Sure. Well, the, the problem, like you say, is that we were talking before, the remedy for false speech or misleading speech is more speech. But if you consolidate it into something like AP, the Associated Press, it's less diverse uh, and it's more uniform. And then, of course, the co problem comes coming back to fake news. Who's to say that AP has not been hacked? Who's to say that you know the that their facts have not been hacked and and, and changed? Uh, I don't know how we could figure that out, but there must. Is there any way that, uh, that people verify uh, in your register newspaper or, or the LA Times or LA Weekly uh, that that the news they're getting from AP is accurate? Yeah, I mean the thing is with AP is that it goes out to so many newspapers nationwide that uh, any organization, any journalist, if there was something that was completely out of whack, would instantly catch it, and then it would be a, it would be a trickle-up effect where people would say, no, that's not, that's not accurate, and it would be fixed. And I, and I actually don't know of any case where a media organization's content um, platform has been hacked and, and, the, and the actual words and content on their site has been changed. Um, we ha I don't think we've seen that yet, um, and God, I hope we never do. No. Uh, how you mentioned algorithms uh, and this well, just just spelling that word is probably beyond my technical ability but but <laughs> how do you how do you see the future uh, Brian Kaya you're you're close to it your finger is on the pulse uh, as to how we get our news uh, how we can protect ourselves other than of course being vigilant and the rest but what do you see for the future of journalism in the next 10 years you know, one of the things you're probably going to see, which is going to change um, every aspect of our lives, and I always talk about um, in, when I'm giving talks or, you know, or think tank type stuff, um, about three of the areas in the country that I think will create the next generation of wealth um, and jobs. And I think those three areas are 
um, cannabis, esports, which I'm a big, um, I'm actually a big advocate of both, but I'm a, a big uh, e-gamer. So, um, and and then the third, which is relevant to your question, is artificial intelligence. And you're already seeing some companies test AI in the journalism context. Um, and it's really interesting because it's both interesting and scary because I think that this is a profession where you really do need human intelligence to be able to offer some of the, the type of um, richness of content that you get. But you're seeing some institutions, um, and I don't remember the companies off the top of my head, but I've, I've definitely done a little bit of exploring on this. Not that I would ever want to do it, but just because I find it interesting and also relevant to understand the trends of the industry um, that are are using artificial intelligence to scan public records and then have the AI create stories based on that. Um, you know, the the question there, you know, to our conversation of bias is, is it bias or is this truly narrative-free news since it's coming from essentially a computer? But um, But that's 100% on the horizon where, you know, you would have artificial intelligence scanning, for example, court reports or government records or budgets um, and creating news stories based on that content. Um, and I think that's going to be a huge change for the industry um, and, you know, kind of scary, to be honest. Uh, and then I think also you're going to have a situation where you see more and more, and you're already seeing this to an extent, more nonprofit journalism institutions that are doing, like I discussed earlier, investigative journalism, in particular from a nonprofit perspective and local communities that preserve local uh, and venerable institutions through a charitable model. I think you'll see more and more of that. And I don't know that we've scratched the surface yet in terms of digital video as a medium for journalism. I think a lot of people thought that that would be the saving grace for journalism in terms of advertising revenue online. It hasn't proven to be that, um, but I think certainly with new technologies, you'll see more and more video. And then I think you can't discount, which also plays a role in some cases, because um, these stories can take on a life of their own, uh, citizen journalism. Because now everyone can be a journalist in many ways, because we all have a cell phone which has a camera and a high-quality camera and a high-quality um, uh, video recorder. So I think those will be some of the bigger changes that we see in the industry. Um, and then truth be told, much like my students are keenly aware, one-third of the jobs that they'll have aren't even invented yet um, when they start. So my students at Chapman, I, I talk about this in class, when they're freshmen, the job that they, one-third of the jobs that they'll leave to work haven't even been created and will be created by the time they graduate. So I can't, you know, if I had a crystal ball, I could predict even better what's going to happen, but um, we don't even know all the stuff that might happen in the next several years. That, that, that really is amazing, and, you, and you're certainly right about artificial intelligence. I can tell you, though, I heard one fellow say that, okay, the computer beat me two times out of three in chess, but it was no match for me in kickboxing. So uh, there's, there's some <laughs> way that human beings can still well, keep in control. I don't know. Have you seen The Matrix? Those guys know <laughs> how to fight. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll leave that one alone. But, but you know, diversity... Uh, and what you say, citizen journalism, is true. It's it, people uh, taking pictures of uh, various events, and you have the ability to get them on right away. The phenomenon of Donald Trump and his tweets, you know, he goes over the head of journalists. Uh, he goes over the head of the media. Uh, it's been a phenomenon there, rightly or wrongly. Uh, how about in nonprofit? You know, you get into the PBS sort of thing or the, or the uh, 
com- the non-commercial radio. Uh, there's certainly they, they've made an impact, and uh, and they're still thriving fairly well, are they not, Brian Kaye? Um, yeah, I think some of them are. I mean, they they're obviously they have they have government assistance, which which kind of makes them more viable. Um, but they are they are they are thriving, and also. But beyond those, you see a lot of um, a lot of just like organizations that have sprouted up that are charitable in nature, and and it's actually quite interesting to see how more and more of them, more and more people are saying, you know what, we need to help support local charitable journalism in our community. Uh, you have in California, you have a bunch of nonprofits. I mean, Cal Watchdog, which is one that I've been involved with for a while. You also have um, Cal Matters, which is pretty popular. Um, and in many uh, newspapers, and you're seeing, I think that they're in both in um, in Philadelphia. I don't know if it's Philadelphia, but I know Pennsylvania more generally, and also in Texas, there are uh, a couple of newspapers that were mainstream that were turned into nonprofit models and have been very successful. Well, you get into YouTube's and and things as well, and we have. Now, just they're pretty standard where you, you get all of these information. I belong to something called LEAP, Law Enforcement uh, Action Partnership, and we get a newsletter every every week. Uh, and, you know, you just have all of these. So we are getting some diversity. I think it's incumbent upon us as citizens, as voters, as caring people to intentionally try to get a diverse source of news. If you're going to watch television, if you still do that, which candidly I really don't, but but watch some of your news on on Fox News and some of your news on MSNBC or CNN or, or whatever, or local channels that, that just make an attempt to make sure that you get diversified information. And included in that, of course, is LA Weekly. But I, I think, like you had said, Brian, at kind of the top of the show, there is definitely a place for the smaller uh, journalism uh, in community affairs. I noticed that a lot of newspapers now are focusing more on high school sports and community, and you talk about restaurants and that sort of thing, uh, which you're certainly not going to have AP talk about restaurants, and you're not going to have uh, you know the, the big media uh, getting into high school sports necessarily. So, so it certainly has a place, as well as I, I see newspapers uh, going into more of kind of like like Atlantic Monthly does, where it develops a story that you're not going to hear this story, particularly on the, the mainstream media. So you, you get to investigate and give us a, a more deeper perspective. Do you do that with LA Weekly as well? Do you, do you actually uh, talk in depth on various stories and investigation? Um, yeah, I mean, we're not doing a whole lot in the investigative uh, news area right now. Um, as I said, we're looking at a nonprofit model to kind of fulfill that aspect of it. But we do have long-form features. The long-form features are typically the covers of the LA Weekly. Um, uh, and, you know, we try to keep them within the cultural aspects of the city, within our vertical. So whether that's food, whether that's art, whether that's culture, whether that's entertainment, whether that's music, um, that's the type of stuff that you see a lot more of uh, from us in particular. And I think that you'll see more and more of that as we, um, as we grow, which I'm excited about. And then, you know, I mean, I think there's a, there's, there's a hunger for that, too. People want that type of, uh, type of information. Well, you're responsive. You know, we and I'm doing private mediations, private judging, and, and we're, we're in, the, in the service business. And if you get people what they want, uh, you'll succeed. Uh, but you're right. Certainly, the thing technology changes. Uh, look what uh, uh, Netflix did for bro- for blockbuster videos. You know, I mean, sometimes look what uh, 
the digital camera did for Kodak film. And sometimes you just, it's inevitable that things are going to change. But like you also said, Brian Kaya, and this is certainly correct, that a third of the jobs that you're going to have in your life haven't been created yet, and that's for sure. So again, like Milton Friedman says, we want to, we want to, if you if you understand, you get more of what you subsidize, less of what you tax. Today, we're subsidizing victimization and kind of laziness and complaining, and we're taxing success. Guess what we're getting more of? But if you're in rolling up your sleeves like Brian Kaye does in the journalism field, uh, and you're producing something that people want, you'll always be successful. But you, it's 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 give and take, and you don't want government to be in there supporting one group as opposed to another, which just tilts the scales. So there you kind of have it. Yet again, uh, yes, life is complicated. We've talked about journalism, fake news, the future with Brian Kaye. And Brian, thank you for being with us, taking your time out to, uh, to share these insights with us, because you certainly have those insights and have that experience. And you teach at Chapman University, which I've already gone on record as saying is just a, a spirited, in, amazing institution. But if we employ these values, and you should, and and they're fortunate to have you, Uh, but I'll keep my show. Thank you very much. But nonetheless, (laughs) uh, we're we're here every week. We discuss issues down and dirty, uh, realistic. Uh, and and straightforward, just like Brian Kaya has been talking with us. That's what we do on All Rise, and if we do that, employing these values, we will continue to all rise together. So think about it, talk about it, diversify, help mentor our children, and and having them to question the source as well with your honest skepticism, and uh, we will all be better off. The future is bright. The future is good. This is Judge Jim Gray saying, life is good. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my ball.